When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Queen Victoria's Christmas Feast. In addition to being the Queen of the United Kingdom and the vast British Empire, Queen Victoria might also be lauded as the Queen of Christmas. She and her beloved husband, Prince Albert, popularized many of the quintessential holiday traditions that we still enjoy today, including Christmas trees, Christmas cards, and Santa Claus. Their nine children enjoyed Christmas trees decorated with delectable dainties like sugar plums, candy canes, and gingerbread. And many new delicious dishes were added to the traditional medieval fare on the royal holiday dinner table including roast turkey, chestnuts, and plum pudding. Let's take a look at the history of how these holiday foods made it onto Her Majesty's table and enjoy a fabulously festive feast fit for a queen. Prince Albert introduced the Christmas tree, a cherished custom he had grown up with in Germany to delight his own children. Each Christmas Eve, per German tradition, Victoria and Albert filled a special room at Windsor Castle with evergreen trees. One large tree in the middle suspended from the ceiling and several smaller tabletop trees, one for each member of the family. And this is where our Christmas feast begins. For rather than glass baubles, the trees were decorated with an abundance of sweet, vibrant, and luxurious confections. This engraving depicting Queen Victoria, her mother, Prince Albert, and their small, gleeful children was widely published and popularized the German Christmas tree in Britain. The accompanying article in the Illustrated London News describes the scene. The tree employed for this festive purpose is a young fir, about eight feet high, and has six tiers of branches. On each tier are arranged a dozen wax tapers. Pendant from the branches are elegant trays, baskets, bonbonnières, and other receptacles for sweetmeats of the most varied and expensive kind, and of all forms, colors, and degrees of beauty. Fancy cakes, gilt gingerbread, and eggs filled with sweetmeats are also suspended by variously colored ribbons from the branches. These sweetmeats, which is just an old English term for candies and confections, not actually meat, included sugar plums, 
which were not actually the fruit we call a plum today, but rather small round confections with raisins, other dried fruit, nut or spice filling, and a hard candy shell that somewhat resembled a fruit. The process of coating these confections with sugar was slow and labor-intensive. Therefore, sugar plums were a rare treat for wealthy children. In the 1700s, the word plum became slang for a large pile of money or a bribe. Sugar plums were further linked with Christmas through the character of the sugar plum fairy from Tchaikovsky's Yuletide Ballet, The Nutcracker. By the 1860s, manufacturing using steam heat and rotating pans made sugar plum style candies widely available for mass consumption. So think of Queen Victoria next time you see an ad featuring the Christmas M&Ms. Candy canes were invented in 1670 when the choir master of Cologne Cathedral in Germany wanted a way to keep children quiet and distracted as they posed in the living nativity scene on Christmas Eve. He asked a local candy maker to create a sugary treat to give to the children. To justify candy in church, he made them into a crook shape to remind the children of the shepherds who visited the infant Jesus. The crook shape was also perfect for hanging from the branches of a Christmas tree, and by the 1840s, recipes for striped, mint-flavored candy canes were popular at Christmas. Gingerbread the spicy ginger root grown in India, Sri Lanka, Nepal, and China came to Europe via the spice trade in the Middle Ages. Gingerbread was brought to Europe in the year 992 by Armenian monk Gregory of Nicopolis. He settled in the town of Pithiviers in northern France, where he taught French Christians how to make the spicy treat. From there, the biscuits spread throughout Europe and were especially popular, painted and hung in windows as decorations and to ease indigestion. Queen Elizabeth I of England was the first to enjoy gingerbread men, which she served to foreign dignitaries. Decorated gingerbread became associated with Christmas, particularly in Germany and the Nordic countries where it is often enjoyed at traditional Christmas markets. The gingerbread presented to the royal children was covered in gold leaf. Once Queen Victoria and Prince Albert had the trees all trimmed with delicious goodies, they rang a bell and their children would rush into the room. Under each child's tree, they found their gifts. Gift wrap wasn't invented until 1917, so the holiday abundance was on open display for the children to marvel at. They would receive toys and dolls, each labeled with their names to avoid any holiday bickering over whose was whose. A footman dressed up as the German character Freund Nikolaus would enter the room to the delight of the children. The royal offspring were tucked in bed on Christmas Eve with sugar plums dancing in their heads. And on Christmas Day, the real feast would begin. Queen Victoria loved her food and drink, and the royal Christmas feast was an indulgent affair. The dining room was decked out in holiday splendor, with two large Christmas trees alight with candles on the sideboard. The meal was served by footmen to guests seated at the dining table, in a progression of multiple elegant courses. This style of service, called a la russe, or in the Russian style, was in vogue in the Victorian era. 
The ingredients on the Queen's table displayed the best produce available to the English upper class, plus a few luxury ingredients from across the globe. And the style of cooking was purely French. French cuisine began gaining popularity throughout Europe in the Renaissance. By the 1600s, the splendor of Louis XIV's court was the envy of royals the continent wide, and the crowned heads of Europe all hired their own French chefs. By Victoria's time, fine dining and French dining were synonymous. Let's explore the menu that was served to Queen Victoria on Christmas Day, 1894. The widowed queen by this time was enjoying her Christmas holidays at Osborne House on the Isle of Wight. Because the kitchens at Osborne were too small to churn out the impressive offerings, the dishes were prepared at Windsor Castle and delivered by Royal Yacht on Christmas Eve. On this particular Christmas, Victoria's guests included her youngest daughter, Princess Beatrice, her husband, Prince Henry of Battenberg, and their four children. Victoria's son Leopold's widow, Princess Helena, Duchess of Albany, and her two children, and Jane Spencer, Baroness Churchill, the Queen's Lady of the Bedchamber and longest-serving lady-in-waiting. The intimate party of 20 to 25 guests sat down to dine at 9 p.m. after the children were tucked in bed. Drinks are not listed on the gilded menu card, but you can be sure that Queen Victoria, who adored a tipple, would have paired her festive fare with the finest wines and spirits. We know that Emperor Franz Joseph I of Austria sent her a dozen bottles of Tokay wine from his personal vineyards in Hungary. First course, potage, à la tête de vous plaire. The meal began with the choice of soups. The first offering was calf's head in a clear consommé. Though this might not sound appealing to modern palates, calf's head soup was incredibly popular in the Victorian era. It all began in the 1750s, when turtles were brought to England from the Caribbean colonies. Their flesh was described as between that of a veal and a lobster, and extremely pleasant. Turtle soup became so popular in England and the U.S. that green turtles were nearly eaten to extinction. By Queen Victoria's time, turtles were almost impossible to get in the U.K., but a more local alternative came into fashion mock turtle soup made from calf's head. Victorian cooks were especially concerned with economy, and this dish was a great way to use every scrap of meat. The brain, tongue, and flesh of the head closely resemble turtle meat. These savory morsels would be simmered and served to Her Majesty in a clear broth and garnished with truffle and mushroom cunelle, or dumplings, and coxcomb, another popular Victorian delicacy which has a pleasant, soft texture. If you're not a fan of au fal, then the second choice of soup is for you. Potage à la Crécy, carrot soup flavored with celery and ham. This dish was created by royal chef Charles Francatelli and was a frequent feature on Victoria's dining table. Second course, poisson. Les tranches du saumon, sauce hollandaise. The fish course had two offerings, salmon steaks dressed with hollandaise sauce. Poached salmon is to this day a very popular dish among the British royal family. 
they often enjoy this pink-fleshed fish caught on their Balmoral estate in Scotland. Hollandaise sauce, French for Dutch sauce, has been enjoyed in the Low Countries since the Middle Ages. It is made from eggs, butter, and lemon juice, and is one of the five mother sauces essential to French cooking. The rich, creamy, slightly tangy sauce was first recorded as being enjoyed in England in 1573. Les sole à la Colbert The second fish, Dover sole, was a very local delicacy for Queen Victoria, as it was commonly caught off the southern coast of England, including the Isle of Wight. Sole has a meaty, delicate, mild, and sweet flavor. A la Colbert is a recipe from the famed French chef of the Savoy Hotel in London, Auguste Escoffier. Sole fillets were coated in breadcrumbs, stuffed with tarragon butter, pan-fried in more butter, and served with fried parsley. Does all this history send you daydreaming about exploring old castles and ancient ruins? Then join me on my historic group tour of Scotland from May 15th to 21st, 2024. Over seven days, we'll experience the highlights of Scottish history, from lowlands to highlands. We'll see the honors of Scotland at Edinburgh Castle, Bronze Age burial chambers at Balnurin of Clava, Elendonan Castle, the Living History Highlands Folk Museum, Dunkeld Cathedral, the mystical Isle of Skye, and so much more. We'll try delicious Scotch delicacies and unwind over a whiskey tasting. And most amazingly, we'll do it all with a group of fellow history lovers and a local guide. Bring a buddy or fly solo. We'll all become friends along the way. Click on the link in the description to reserve your place on this historic trip today. I can't wait to meet you in Scotland. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Third course, entree. Le pain du frozon à la milanaise. Unlike the American use of the word, the French entree course means a starter and is typically a small, savory dish. This Christmas, the royal party enjoyed molds of pureed pheasant meat. Pheasant has been a popular game bird in England since the Middle Ages. They are often hunted for sport on the estates of the nobility. The taste of pheasant is comparable to turkey. This recipe was flavored with truffles. Black truffles are rare and notoriously difficult to farm. They must be foraged and are often found in the forests of central and northern Italy. They are one of the most expensive edible mushrooms in the world at around $2,500 a pound today. 
The pheasant and truffle molds were served a la Milanese, referring to a thick tomato, mushroom, and truffle sauce which hails from the Italian city of Milan. Fourth course, roulette, roast beef, Yorkshire pudding. Now we get to the main courses of the meal. The roulette or reveal course is traditionally a substantial red meat dish meant to impress. Queen Victoria enjoyed this quintessential English dish, roast beef, which had been at the center of the English royal Christmas table since the Middle Ages. King Henry VIII enjoyed impressive joints of beef, roasted on a spit in front of an open fire and served with mustard sauce. Queen Victoria's similarly rotund son, the future King Edward VII, popularized roast beef and Yorkshire pudding for Sunday lunch. The first recipe for Yorkshire pudding appears in 1737 in the north of England. A batter of eggs, flour, and milk was placed in a pan directly underneath a roasting joint of meat. As the savory juices from the meat fall into the pan, they cook the batter into a rich but airy popover, similar to a souffle. Fifth course, roux, or roast. Le don à la chipolata. While the roast beef represents the Christmas of the past, this menu item, the roast turkey, represents the Christmas of the future. While Henry VIII was dining on roast beef, his lowlier subjects might have enjoyed a Christmas goose. Goose was a plentiful and relatively inexpensive meat throughout Europe. Working-class families, like the Cratchits in Charles Dickens' classic tale, A Christmas Carol, would participate in goose clubs, where they would contribute their pennies throughout the year to save up for a goose at Christmas. As most Victorian houses in towns didn't have ovens, the goose would be roasted at the local bake shop and then brought home to serve as the centerpiece of the festive family meal. Victoria and Albert, with their nine children, made large families fashionable, and with more mouths to feed, the succulent goose was seen as a rather paltry poultry. Just as Ebenezer Scrooge upgrades the Cratchit's poor Christmas goose, so all of England began to favor the much larger, though less flavorful bird, the turkey. Native to North America, where they are a central part of the Thanksgiving meal in November, turkeys were imported to England in the 1500s. But once they took over pride of place at the Victorian Christmas table, turkey farming exploded in England. Roast turkey remains the most popular Christmas main course in the UK and the US. Victoria's turkey was served with braised chestnuts, glazed pearl onions, mushrooms, bacon, and chipolata sausages, with a pan-reduction sauce of Madeira wine from the Portuguese Madeira Islands. Chestnuts were popularly linked with Christmas in 1945 by The Christmas Song, in which Mel Torme croons about them roasting on an open fire. But the nut has a much older association with Christmas in France, dating back to the 1500s. In the late 1800s, their popularity saved the city of Lyon from recession. The chestnut's tender meat, when roasted, is similar to a sweet potato. Chipolata is a fresh pork sausage originally from France. They remain a staple of the Christmas meal in the UK and are often served wrapped in bacon. If that's not enough pork for you, Queen Victoria was also served a chin of pork. 
This dish hails from Lincolnshire, England. A tender cut of pork is sliced and stuffed with herbs, including parsley, thyme, and mint, simmered slowly and served sliced cold. The contrasting stripes of red and green look particularly Christmassy. Sixth course, entremet. The final sit-down course was a selection of desserts. Les jaspers à la sauce. Asparagus spears in a white sauce. The Victorians often enjoyed one more savory dish along with their sweets. Mince pies. Unlike sweetmeats, this dessert actually does contain meat. This traditional Christmas pastry has been popular in England since it was brought from the Middle East by crusaders in the 10 hundreds. It may even date back to the ancient Romans' midwinter festival of Saturnalia. A recipe from 1854 includes chopped beef tongue, beef suet, raisins, currants, mace, cloves, nutmeg, brown sugar, apples, lemons, brandy, and orange peel, all chopped small, mixed, and baked in a pie crust. Plum pudding. Another traditional British Christmas dessert is made with similar ingredients to the minced pie filling. To people in the 1700s, a plum was what we now call a raisin. Raisins, other chopped dried fruit, suet, treacle, breadcrumbs, flour, eggs, and spices are all mixed together and boiled or steamed in a bag. Solid evidence of the plum pudding dates to the early 1700s. However, this treat has been greatly mythologized and is said to have originated in medieval times. It is supposed to be made on the 25th Sunday after Trinity on the Christian calendar. This day is called Stir Up Sunday, as each member of the family must take a turn to stir the pudding from east to west to honor the journey of the Magi. The pudding is also traditionally made with 13 ingredients to represent Jesus and the 12 apostles. After cooking, the plum pudding is soaked in brandy, decorated with sprigs of holly, and set on fire when it is presented to the table. Les Jalets d'Orange, à l'anglaise. No upper-class Victorian dinner would be complete without a show-stopping, sumptuous sculpted jelly. As refrigeration was incredibly expensive in the 1800s, chilled dishes like jelly, or jello as it is called in the States, were a real show-off. Her Majesty's Jolly Jelly creation featured orange-flavored custards served with cream. Side table. I hope you saved a bit of room. Queen Victoria's sideboard groaned under the weight of even more massive, over-the-top dishes sent to her as Christmas presents by the other crowned heads of Europe. This table, set to one side of the dining room, harkened back to the medieval style of royal dining in which all the impressive dishes of roast meats, pies, and game birds were laid out at once for diners to pick and choose from. Baron of Beef this impressively large joint of meat weighed in at just under 300 pounds. It was the two hind legs of one of Her Majesty's own shorthorn oxen, raised at her Frogmore estate. The beef was spit-roasted for 12 hours and placed in the center of the table and decorated with crowns and the current year, all sculpted with fresh horseradish. Wild Boar's Head 
The spectacle of a boar's head being served to royal diners is the epitome of Christmas tradition. Boar's head has been the centerpiece dish of kings and queens dating back to Henry II in the 1100s. There was even a special Christmas carol that was sung to serenade the head as it was carried into the great hall and presented. Prince Albert was especially fond of this dish, which was stuffed with even more meat, spices, and nuts soaked in cognac, and an apple stuffed in its mouth. Victoria's grandson, Kaiser Wilhelm II, the Emperor of Germany, sent her a boar's head every Christmas, along with two giant hampers filled with German cakes and cookies. Game Pie This gigantic and intricately decorated pastry was filled with partridge, pheasant, deer, hare, and a variety of other meats hunted on the Queen's many estates around the country. Brawn in case you were thinking, this is all lovely, but I could do with a bit more head on the menu. Brawn, also known as head cheese, is made with small morsels of meat from the head of a calf or pig and set in aspic jelly. Woodcock pie, filled with the meat of woodcock birds, was a gift from the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Terrine du foie gras. The silky and rich livers of a fattened goose or duck were enjoyed by the ancient Egyptians and Romans. In the Middle Ages, Jews living in Europe were prohibited by kosher law from eating the popular cooking fats of the area, bacon and butter. So they relied on poultry fat or schmaltz for cooking and fattened their flocks to produce it. By the Victorian era, foie gras was a popular show-off ingredient on upper-class Gentile tables. Victoria's pâté de foie gras was encased in pastry to look like a giant pork pie. It took four footmen to carry it in, and was a gift from Her Majesty's distant cousin, Frederick Francis III, the Grand Duke of Mecklenburg-Schwerin. Other ingredients for the Christmas feast arrived as gifts from Victoria's relatives. Her granddaughter Sophia, the future queen of Greece, sent the spices used in the meal. And her grandson-in-law, Tsar Nikolai II of Russia, sent several sturgeon, which were enjoyed at lunchtime. In exchange for all of these delectable gifts, Victoria's kitchens at Windsor Castle produced 200 plum puddings, draining 24 bottles of brandy. The puddings were stamped with VR, the Queen's royal insignia, and covered in gold leaf. These dainties would be sent to her family, friends, and the other crowned heads of Europe, so that everyone would have a very Merry Christmas. What does your Christmas feast look like? Are you brave enough to try any of Queen Victoria's recipes? Let me know in the comments. Wherever you are and whatever you celebrate, I wish you a jolly holiday season, and I hope that we all have a happy new year. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. I'll be putting out new episodes every Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos, unburying some of my favorite hidden gems, and adding even more fascinating information for your listening pleasure. Want some visuals with your history? Then check out my YouTube channel, History Tea Time with Lindsay Holiday, where you can find hundreds of videos about queens of the world, royal history, women's history, and more. 
you can also follow History Tea Time on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like Queen's Podcast, Ancient History Fangirl, Redacted History, and more. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.